0: what you need to do is you need to think about what it is that you do that's different, what it is that you do that's unique, what it is that you do that is differentiated, and then attach that to a problem that the customer didn't know they had or didn't think was important enough to solve. And that is how you start to determine what the unconsidered needs are. Those unknown strengths, those hidden capabilities that you have that the competition cannot match. That is how you build urgency and uniqueness into your why chain story, and that is where your story needs to live.
1: The B2B Marketing Exchange brings together B2B marketing and sales practitioners from across the country to get the latest tools and tips they need to succeed. Now, we're bringing the insights from the stage to your ears. I'm Claudia Tarico, And I'm Kelly Lindenow. And this is the B2B Marketing Exchange Podcast. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning into the B2B MX podcast today. We're headed back to Boston to revisit the B2B Sales and Marketing Exchange's opening keynote. It was titled Acquisition versus Expansion, Using Decision Science to Acquire, Keep, and Grow Customer Revenue, featuring Corporate Vision's Leslie Talbot.
2: I'm super excited to relive this session because Corporate Vision's whole methodology is just so fascinating to me. Marketers know the strategies needed to keep customers engaged and attract new ones. But it's rare that we get to pull back the curtain and learn more about the inner workings of buyers' minds and target them on that subconscious level.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, especially because research has found that more than 50% of companies use the same approach for every sales and marketing conversation. That's a major red flag if I ever saw one. So throughout this session, Leslie actually delves into how to disrupt the status quo, defend and retain and grow relationships, and she even shares science-backed techniques and frameworks. So, I mean, I think that's enough out of us. Let's roll that tape. So... I
0: guess I'm the only thing standing between you guys and the bar, the opening reception. The good news is is that I talk really fast, so um, I should be able to uh, should be able to get you out to the reception pretty soon. So, want to just start off? Um, does everybody know who this gentleman is? Yeah, it's Malcolm Gladwell. I used to make people guess, but everybody kind of knew, so now I just say, yeah, it's Malcolm Gladwell. So Malcolm Gladwell is one of the most respected business authors in the world. Um, He's written, I think, eight books now. Um, He travels all around the world. He gets paid something like $150,000 for every speaking engagement that he does, which is awesome but the book that he is most famous for is actually one of the first books that he wrote, which is called The Tipping Point. And The Tipping Point is a book about how little things make a big difference. Now, Malcolm Gladwell, widely recognized as a worldwide authority on the topic of The Tipping Point. Everybody still wants to talk to him about it. But the interesting thing about Malcolm Gladwell and The Tipping Point is that he actually did not come up with the idea or originate the concept of The Tipping Point. This guy did. Does anyone know who this is? You don't. That's a trick question, right? This is, this is Morton Grodsons. Morton Grodsons was a political science professor at the University of Chicago, and he originated the concept of the tipping point 40 years before Malcolm Gladwell wrote his book. So the question is, What was it that Malcolm Gladwell did that Morton Grodsons did not? Why was Malcolm Gladwell able to take an idea that was old and unoriginal and make millions of dollars off of it, whereas poor Morton Grodsons, who by all accounts was a very nice person, labored in obscurity in his classroom for the rest of of his career, and actually sadly died at a very young age. So what was the difference between the two of them? Storytelling, yeah, exactly. Malcolm Gladwell told a better story. He told a better story because he used anecdotes and examples and great narrative to be able to take an idea that was inherently great and make it apparently obvious to his audience. And in doing so, he articulated the value of the idea. So what does this have to do with sales and marketing? Well, as sellers, as marketers, whatever our role is, we are all in the business of articulating value. We do that every day. Sadly, most sellers, most marketers actually don't do a really good job at articulating value. Um, And in fact, in a survey of B2B senior executives, um, I think it was Forrester that did this survey, about 89% of them said that the biggest obstacle to commercial success was the inability to articulate value. The inability to be able to communicate and to make your ideas uh, to make your ideas um, coherent. So, value in general is kind of an abstract concept, right? How do you know? Value is essentially in the eyes of the beholder. So if you want to learn how to articulate value, the first thing that you need to do is you need to understand what it is that your audience actually does value. How do they frame value? How do they make choices? And how does that influence how you as a seller, you as a marketer, will interact with them? And the way to do this is through a discipline, through a science that we call decision science, which is the study of how buyers frame value and make choices. Decision science is composed of three separate disciplines, behavioral economics, cognitive neuroscience, and social psychology. Those three things together comprise decision science. So behavioral economics is the study of how buyers actually behave versus how you might logically think that they should behave. One of the most fun things about studying behavioral, science, behavioral economics is that people make choices that are often wildly at odds with what they say they'll do or what they actually should do logically. Cognitive neuroscience is about studying the brain. What is going on in a buyer's brain as that you are presenting to them, as you're having a conversation with them, as they are interacting with your content? And social psychology is how the external forces in your buyer's life are going to influence the decisions that, that they make. So at Corporate Visions, we study all of these things. We do research, we write reports, we run tests, we put the little caps on people and study what their brains do, and we do all that to find out what is the best way for sellers and marketers to articulate value to their buyers. One of the things that we have studied over the years is whether or not buyers frame value and make choices differently based on whether they are a prospect or whether they're an existing customer of yours. Does does it make a difference in the decisions that they make if they have had a long-standing relationship with you and bought things from you, or if they're brand new? Um, And before before I tell you what the answer is, I can tell you that in the past in my work at Corporate Visions, I used to spend a lot of time telling people, nah, you know what, it doesn't make any difference. If you've got a great message, it was good enough to get them in the door, it should be good enough to keep them with you, right? But is that really true? What do you think? So there's a concept in decision science called status quo bias. And what status quo bias tells you basically is that people, all other things being equal, will likely stick with the decision that they make. They don't like change all other things being equal, they want to just keep doing the same thing over and over again because it's easier for them, they perceive it as less risky. There's a host of reasons why people tend to prefer the status quo. So when you are in an acquisition motion, when you're interacting with a prospect and you want to get them to do something different, your job is to defeat their status quo bias. You want to disrupt them and you want to disrupt them because you've got to convince them that their situation is urgent enough that they need to do something different. And how do you do that? You do that by getting them to change and getting them to change now. So that sounds relatively easy, right? Oh, okay, all you need to do is go out and get, get people to change. How difficult is it to get people to change? How difficult is it to get people to do something different? It's pretty hard. It's really, really hard. Let's take a look at the typical B2B buyer interaction the way most people understand it. It usually starts with a point where the customer will engage with you in some way, shape, or form. They'll click a link on your website, they'll respond to a campaign, or they might pick up the phone and call one of your your BDRs just to get information. And in most organizations, when that happens, that kind of kicks off a little bit of a feeding frenzy, right, you're all over this buyer, everybody is all over this buyer, you know, they're interacting with you, they're interacting with other people on your team, they're likely interacting with the competition as well. And at the end of that, You go back and forth and they make a choice, right? They choose you or they choose the competition. But is that the only choice that they can make? What else could they possibly do? Nothing, Nothing. exactly. And in fact, according to research by Sales Benchmark Index, 40 to 60% of qualified opportunities, that's opportunities that are in your CRM that your sellers are excited about, 40 to 60% of opportunities end in no decision and I will submit to you that the reason why this happens is because sellers and marketers are having the wrong conversation with their prospects. They're trying to get them to choose them. They're trying to get them to choose you, so they're answering the why you question, when in fact the buyer hasn't even decided that they want to do anything different at all. They take that initial engagement as a buying signal, and they spend a lot of time trying to promote why they are better than the competition, when in fact the buyer may not be interested in doing anything different whatsoever. So if you want to have an effective why change conversation with your buyer, you've actually got to back that conversation up to the point where they're untroubled. And by untroubled, I don't mean they don't have any problems. They might, in fact, even be dissatisfied with the status quo that you are trying to disrupt, but they're just not going to admit that to you, right? They're going to interact with you because they actually secretly, deep down, want someone to tell them that everything's okay and they really don't need to do anything different. So, you need to back the conversation up to where they're untroubled, get them to challenge their assumptions about the way the world works today, and get them to see the world a different way. And if you do that with your wide change message, you create a much faster and better trajectory to you and to your solution. This is called creating a buying vision. And what the research shows is that, while well, 26% of B2B buyers might like the traditional bake-off RFP kind of situation where you know, they stack you up against all of your competitors and they do the full moons and the half moons and then they pick usually based on price, right? In fact, 74% of senior decision makers say that all other things being equal, they will prefer to work with a company that establishes the buying vision. So if you can get in there early, if you can start to get them to think about the world in a different way, you've got a much better chance of actually closing that commercial transaction. Okay, all right, so how do you defeat status quo bias? How do you have that conversation? The first thing that you need to do is you need to understand what causes status quo bias in the first place. What are the four causes or what we call antecedents of its status quo bias? There's basically four things to look for. Preference stability, the perceived cost of change, selection difficulty, and anticipated regret and blame. Preference stability simply means that when somebody makes a decision, they prefer to stick with that decision through thick and thin. Even if they're not 100% wholly satisfied with that decision, or even if it was a really difficult decision to arrive at, they're they're gonna stick with that. Cost of change, the perceived cost of change. People believe the status quo is free. They believe if they do nothing else, if they just kind of stay put, it might not be the best situation in the world, but at least it's not gonna cost them anything extra, right? So to overcome the cost of change, you actually have to show them that the cost of staying the same is greater than the cost of change. It, It creates more risk, it creates more expense, it creates more business problems to keep doing what you're doing than it is to change. Selection difficulty. When all other things look alike, it's safer to just stick with what you're doing. So if you're trying to overcome selection difficulty, you need to show contrast between yourself and the competition or between yourself and the status quo. Because contrast, perception of value, lies in the contrast between competing alternatives. And then finally, anticipated regret and blame. Nobody wants to be that person, the person who made the bad decision that took the company down the wrong path. And in fact, science shows that the actual, the actual thought or idea or imagining making that terrible decision can elicit in people the same physiological response that they would experience if they actually made that decision in the first place. Your palms sweat, you get that sick feeling in the, in, the, in the pit of your stomach. So to overcome anticipated regret and blame, you need to reassure them. And the way that we like to do this is through what we call a relevant proof story. You need to show how somebody else had that same unconsidered need, was surfaced, solved the problem working with you kind of resolves that. So those are the causes of status quo bias, and I use the term unconsidered need because that is a key part of delivering a why change message. So if you think about all of the stuff that you have to offer, all of the products, all of the solutions, and you bang up that up against the needs that your customers say that you have, chances are there's going to be stuff that you do that overlaps with needs that the customer has. And they will be all too happy to tell you what their needs are. And as a marketer, as a seller, people do all kinds of voice of the customer research. They do all kinds of interviews and all kinds of research to determine what those needs of the customer are. So you have that conversation. They tell you what they want, and that's wonderful, right? Boom, you've got these capabilities, and they're great, and they're going to solve that perfectly. The only problem is, as they tell you what their needs are, they're telling your competition the same thing, right? So what ends up happening is you get red boxed, right? You have a commoditized conversation with that customer where what they're telling you is the same thing that they're telling the competition and what the competition is telling them is the same thing that they're telling you. That's no good for anyone, but aha, you say. That might be true, but we don't just talk about what they say they want. We also talk to them about our value added capabilities. And the value added capabilities are stuff that you add on, that you layer on, that the customer perceives as adding cost and complexity. It's not necessarily stuff that they need, not necessarily stuff that they asked for. So it's not necessarily stuff that they're going to respond to that's going to make them favor you over the competition. So what do you need to do? What you need to do is you need to think about what it is that you do that's different what it is that you do that's unique, what it is that you do that is differentiated, and then attach that to a problem that the customer didn't know they had or didn't think was important enough to solve. And that is how you start to determine what the unconsidered needs are. Those unknown strengths, those hidden capabilities that you have that the competition cannot match. That is how you build urgency and uniqueness into your why change story, and that is where your story needs to live. Now, when I talk about unconsidered needs, there's, there are very few needs that are out there that the customer is truly not aware of. If you have a capability that solves a problem that a customer doesn't know they have and really, really needs to solve, take that and run with that all the way to the bank because that is messaging gold. What is far more likely is that your customer has problems that are... Undervalued. So they know they've got a problem, they don't think it's important enough to solve, therefore they do nothing about it. It is your job as a seller or as a marketer to get them to care about that problem way more than they already do because you've got the ideal solution for it. And then the other type of unconsidered need is what we call an unmet need. In other words, they think they're solving it, they know it's a problem, they've got a work around, it's okay, they feel like they can live with it. So an unmet need, you, your job again as marketers to show them that their current approach is flawed, is unsustainable in some way. So that's what you need to do to be able to start to build your why change story. Identify what you do differently, build around that and make sure that you're attaching that to needs that the customer has discounted in some way, shape, or form. From a message framework perspective, what it looks like is to number one, lead with the need, lead with that unconsidered need, shake them up, destabilize their preferences, let them know that they have got a problem and they need to solve that problem right away. Show them their flawed current approach. They're doing something about it, but whatever it is, they're not doing it right, and you've got to show them that that flawed flawed approach is unsustainable and then finally show them the new way. What should they be doing? What should they be doing differently? And by the way, obviously, what they should be doing differently is they need to buy your thing, right? That's why you're having that conversation with them. But in a why change message, you've got to sell them on the need first. You've got to sell them on the approach before you start to sell them on the product. You've got to get them to agree like, wow, that really is a problem. I hadn't thought about it. I really should be doing things differently before you can hit them with your capabilities. The biggest mistake I see marketers and sellers make in creating why change messages is that they try to shoehorn their solution in too quickly. You've gotta get them to buy into the approach before they buy into the product. And so that's great. So that's your why change framework. But how do you create urgency around that? Because you could give them that great why change message and they could be like, yeah. You know, it really does sound like I have a problem. Come back next year and maybe we'll talk about it. Whereas you want to communicate that urgency now. So you need to build a why now framework around your why change message. Attach their problem to a business issue or an industry trend that you know they care about. Right? Make sure that you align that story with something that is going on in their world right now that they know that they have to deal with. And then bookend that with that customer story, with that example, with that, like, that likely outcome that will show what their world is like when they finish, when they adopt your solution, when they solve that problem. So that is the why change story. That is the why change message framework. And that's awesome when you're trying to get someone to change, right? <sighs> but here's the thing. Most organizations that we work with get between 70 to 80% of their revenue from existing customers. So chances are most of the customer conversations you, your sellers, your marketers are having are with existing customers where you are the status quo. So when you are the incumbent, when you are the status quo, do you really want to disrupt yourself? No, of course you don't, right? You absolutely don't. When you are the incumbent, when you are the vendor of choice, your job is to defend the status quo, because now you are the status quo. And that is a wholly different type of message. That is a wholly different buyer psychology. It is a wholly different set of skills that you need to adopt to be able to message to that existing customer. Otherwise, what our research shows is that If you go in and you try to disrupt an existing customer with a why change story, you stand a 10% higher likelihood that they will start to shop around because all of a sudden you've disrupted them and you've gotten them to say, oh wow, things are really not good. I better go out and look and see if there's anything else I can do about this. So your job as a seller, as a marketer, is to defend your status quo. And that's either through what we call a why stay or a why evolve message because there's two, two different motions here. So remember all that stuff that I told you about defeating the status quo and all the things that you have to do to defeat the four antecedents of status quo bias? When you are in an expansion or a a retention motion, you need to do the exact opposite of everything that I just told you to do here, literally. So instead of creating uncertainty around their preference stability, you actually wanna reinforce that because their preference in this case was you. They picked you at one time, and you want to make sure that they know that that was the best, the smartest, the wisest thing that they ever did. Instead of showing them that the cost of change is less than the cost of staying the same, you want to show them the opposite. You want to show them that making a change now would be difficult, would be risky, would be expensive, would be disruptive to their business. Why in the world would they want to do that? And then selection difficulty, again, the idea of selection difficulty is to show clear contrast between yourself and the alternative. But like we said, human beings hate change. And all other things being equal, they would rather just keep doing the same thing. So all you need to do in a retention motion when all you want them to do is buy the same thing from you again, you actually don't want to show that much contrast between yourself and the alternative. Why? Because if you start showing contrast between yourself and the alternative, they're going to want to investigate whether options are out there. So what you want to be able to do is you want to be able to show that you're keeping up with the market, and they, as a result, are keeping up with the market. But you yourself, you don't you don't want them to, to look around and look at the alternatives. And then finally, anticipated regret and blame. Again, this is a big one, especially in an, a retention or expansion motion, because here is where you can show them that the risk of d- making a change is going to be too great for them, and that if they move away from a solution that they've already had ex- success with, that they've already invested in, in time, in money, in resources, the alternative could be extremely painful for them. So you want to, again, reinforce all of that. So does that make sense, everybody? Does that that kind of seem logical to you? Yeah, it does. And like I said before, for years, like I, as a messenger, ran around and told people, yeah, you've got a great message that should work for existing customers. And it wasn't until we tested it with our scientists. And by the way, we tested this three times because we like the results came back and we said, no, that can't be. We kept testing it and testing it. And finally, our scientists said to us, it's called status quo bias for a reason. So lean into that. You have a tremendous advantage as the incumbent vendor, and that is a good thing, because that's where the bulk of your business is coming from. So this is what, if you, if, you think about, if you think about this motion as value over time, one of the things that you'll see is that it's not just you who has made an investment in this customer. Your customer has made an investment in you as well. You know, they, in addition to the purchase price, I mean, they've invested political capital, they've invested their reputation, they've invested a lot of things in getting to a workable solution with you. That's the current impact of that solution, right? And they should be seeing results fairly early. But they've also invested time, money, and resources in making that, making that um, investment and making that successful. What does that mean for you? That gives you what we call your incumbent advantage. As the incumbent, you have an advantage in that they have invested in you just as much as you've invested in them. They are going to be very reluctant to move off of that investment because essentially they would be starting from scratch all over again. So when the competitor comes in and they're trying to steal them away from you and you are the status quo, the questions that you need to be able to raise with this existing customer, is it really worth it? Is it really worth backtracking and giving up all? all of the progress that they have made for an unknown, untested, unproven solution. So that's kind of the conversation that you need to have, and that's what you need to infuse through all of your selling and all of your marketing materials to reinforce their status quo bias and reinforce your incumbent advantage. What does an expansion message look like? As I said, there's two expansion motions that you need to master in order to have these conversations. They both begin the same way, but there are substantial differences between the two. So the first motion is the renewal motion, right? This is where you've got a customer and you don't want them to do anything different, you don't want them to buy new stuff from from you, all you want them to do is just renew their contract, right? So how do you start that conversation or how do you infuse that kind of conversation in the materials and the content that you create for them? You start by documenting the results, by documenting the success that they have had with you and whether that is progress toward goals or whether actual goals achieved. You want to keep track of that. You want your sellers to keep track of that. You want your customer success team to keep keep track of that so that you can document how successful and how wise that decision was. And then you're going to reinforce their preference stability by reminding them of the due diligence that they did when they chose you in the first place. And you do this for two reasons. The first reason that you do this is because you want to remind them of what an unpleasant experience it was and do they really want to go through that again? But also you want to reassure them that yeah, they did do their homework. Yeah, they did consult the right people. Yeah, they did do all of their research. They did everything right. They arrived at a very wise, very considered, very reasoned decision. And then you start to talk about the risk of change. What are the things that could go wrong in their business if they they make an untested, unproven change to an untested, unproven solution. So you underscore how risky that decision could make and then you compare that or you pair that with the perceived cost of change, right? Because you know what? Making a change is not just risky from a business perspective, it's also risky from a financial perspective. Think about, you know, the investment in training, the investment in resources, the investment in personnel, um, having to maybe run two systems side by side for however long while the new new re- solution proves itself. So all of those hidden costs that the competitor isn't telling them about, you need to raise and you need to surface with them. And then finally, you talk about your competitive advances. Remember I said that in a renewal motion, you don't want to disrupt your prospect, your, your customer. You don't want to... Dump a lot of new, unconsidered, unproven, unknown needs on them at this stage because you don't want to spur them to go out and start to look for something else. What you do want to do is you want to show them that you, and therefore they, are keeping up with the changes in the market, that you know what's going on, that they are well covered and they are secure. And given people's propensity for status quo bias, that should do go a long way toward reassuring them that they're going to be okay if they stick with you. So that's a renewal message. But if you are like every other commercial organization that I've I've worked with, you don't just wanna sell them the same thing over and over again. You wanna sell them new stuff. You wanna sell them shinier stuff. You wanna sell them better stuff, right? You wanna do the upsell. And that is what we call the why evolve motion. The why evolve motion builds on the relationship that you have with that customer builds on the trust that they have with you, and works to parlay that trust and that relationship into a deeper and more profitable relationship for both of you. So how do you do that? Again, you start with documenting results. Starts the exact same way as the why stay message, right? You wanna document their progress to their strategic business goals, and I'm gonna talk about what those are in just a second. But you wanna document the progress, but then, instead of going down the line and just reinforcing everything that they did, You need to gently let them know that their world is changing, and they made a great decision to work with you however many years ago, but the world is different now. Market forces have changed, or recession is coming, or inflation is a big problem. Whatever it is, there are things going on inside and outside their organization that affect the viability of the solution that they bought from you. And this is not to say, hey, you know, nobody saw that coming and we didn't know, but really more like... Yeah, you know, the world is changing. The world always changes. You made a really good decision, um, but, you know, these new forces are coming in, and this is kind of the logical progression of your relationship and your use of our solution. So, highlight those evolving pressures, and then, and this is where you really have to lean into the relationship because you've got to be honest with your customer. You've got to share the hard truth that given these evolving pressures, they are not as well positioned as they could be to deal with those evolving pressures. And like I said, this is a conversation that is very much built on your existing relationship with that customer. And the conversation can evolve something along the lines of, you know, we've been great partners for X number of years and we wouldn't be a good partner if we didn't let you know where you are exposed. And it's really hard to do this. Sellers have a really hard time admitting that the thing that they sold 2 years ago isn't going to fit the bill for the next 2 years. But it's critically important because you know what, if you don't tell them where they're exposed, the competition will. And if the competition is right, you could walk into a situation where one of our clients actually came to us and uh, came to us and said, "You know, my boss went to a conference and heard XYZ and my vendor hadn't warned me about X, Y, Z, so my boss came to me and asked me why I hadn't told him about this problem. So there's always gonna be forces out there that are swirling. You can't put your customers in like a bubble and expect them to not hear about this. So it's better that they hear those hard truths from you than anyone else because they trust you. And then you share with them, hey, here's the risk that you're exposed to if you don't do something differently. But then finally, you talk about the upside opportunity and you talk about what it is that they're going to be able to do differently if you go forward together, if they buy your new platform, if they upgrade to the next solution, if they augment their solution with some new capability that's going to address those evolving pressures. So again, very, very much a relationship-based conversation building on the trust that they have already established with you. And the Why Evolve conversation, I say, is the one that most of our expansion customers come to us to, to, learn, to learn from because they all are looking to expand those relationships with their, with their customers. So again, client, um, client expansion, client acquisition, Two completely different motions, they do not mean the same same thing. Different skills, different psychologies, different stories that you need to be able to master both of those. And this is what it looks like kind of in the overall life cycle of a customer relationship. You can see the beginning, you're looking to defeat the status quo. I want to call out this partnership planning portion of this diagram because I think this is something where a lot of handoffs get dropped, right? So the seller makes the sale, it's awesome. The implementation team moves in, the customer success team moves in, and a lot of times they're incented very differently. A lot of customer success People are incented to make their customers happy. They're incented on things like adoption and utilization, and all of those things are really important. But chances are the senior decision makers who signed off on that purchase weren't looking to buy your solution because they wanted a lot of people to adopt it. They had real business challenges and business goals and corporate goals and departmental goals that they wanted to achieve. So it is incumbent on both your sellers, your marketers, your customer success teams to know what those goals are and how they're measured. And you would be amazed We thought when we rolled out this framework, everybody would have a handle on how to document their results and everybody would have a handle on on what their goals were and everybody would have a handle on the metrics that they use to measure success. It's something that customers really struggle with. So it's better to start having those conversations with them early and get them to think about the things that you'd like to be measured on, right? Because if they don't know what to measure, you can help them and you can actually strengthen their partnership by doing that. So after they've crossed the Rubicon and they, they become your customer, and you become the incumbent, again, you're going to have, you're, you're going to have or your sellers are gonna have quarterly business reviews with that customer, where what do you do during the quarterly business review? You should be revisiting those goals, documenting those results, identifying their progress and where you might have fallen short so that you can resolve it. And you're gonna do this in every single QBR. You're gonna bring them that information on those evolving pressures, on those industry trends. Why? Because when you come to have that expansion conversation, you don't want them to raise their hand and be like, why didn't you tell me about this, right? So you wanna make sure that you understand what it is they're trying to achieve and then relentlessly track those goals as you go. And then when you get to the point where the contract is coming to an end and you realize you've got kind of two decisions to make. If it doesn't look like you're gonna buy anything new from you, then go straight to that renewal conversation. You've already got your results documented so you can talk to them about the risk of doing something different and they should just re-sign on that dotted line. But if they've indicated that they might be opening to expanding that relationship with you, then have the evolve conversation with them because that is the ideal time to start getting the wheels turning and having that and getting them to, to consider doing not just something different, but something more with you. So that's the commercial choreography. And that is what I had to tell you about. We've got a ton of information in this ebook. If you want to grab it, just grab the QR code and you can download it. And I'm a, I told you I talk fast, so I'm a little bit early. Um, does anybody have any specific questions about this? Anything I can answer? Yeah, Brian. Um, when it comes to
1: the acquisition motion,
0: So that's a great question and I think it goes back to what I said when I was going through the framework. I think what people do is, people get it. People get that you need to disrupt the status quo and they get that you need to do that, but there's always that, like, just that tension, that compulsion to immediately start talking about your thing, about talking about your solution, right? Because you, you know, they'll be talking about a problem, they'll be talking about a risk, and you know that you have the thing that's going to solve that, and of course you want to tell them, but they're not ready to hear that yet. You've got to get them to buy into the approach. So one of the um, One of the side jobs that I have at my company is I often review messaging that's written by our consultants um, for our clients, and that's probably the thing that I flag more than anything else. Don't talk about their solution at all. What you need to do is talk about an approach. What should they be doing differently? What's the action that they should be taking, not what's the thing they can buy? So, yeah, that's a great question. Yes? Any
2: information about um, just folks changing roles
0: yeah so that's a great question too and we're definitely seeing a lot of that and i think that's when documenting results can be critically important right because if you have you know engaged in a relationship with a customer and you know you've done you know you and by you i mean not you personally but you as an organization have done your homework in terms of understanding what were their corporate goals What were they trying to accomplish? What were they trying to do at a strategic level? Knowing enough about the high level of their business so that you can speak to those and you can demonstrate to that new decision maker that Here's what we were talking about before you came in. Here's why this solution was chosen. Here's the process that you went through to choose this solution, and here are the here's the progress to those goals that were specified. That actually puts you light years ahead of probably what anybody else would be doing because you're demonstrating that understanding of their business. And if you can demonstrate to that decision making, uh, that decision maker that you are integral to the to the formation of those goals, they're gonna to start to see you more as a partner and less as just a vendor. So just demonstrating that understanding of the business and being an asset to the new decision maker versus just another vendor who's coming in trying to fight for your position. How can you help them? That's a great question. Anyone else? Um, pro tip, in those little white boxes in front of everybody, there are, there are chocolates, I discovered. So so the last thing I'm going to leave you with is um, I'm going to hang around for a little while. So if anybody wants to ask any questions or wants more information, um, I'm happy to share that with you. But thank you. I'm really happy that I got to kick you all off. Thank
2: you. I loved Leslie's energy during this session. She just shared some really actionable takeaways. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you really can't argue with science, can you? (laughs) You're absolutely right, Claudia. You cannot argue with science. So with that, that is a wrap on today's episode. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in today. And I'd hate for you to miss any upcoming episodes. So make sure to subscribe to the pod today. We're available on your podcast player of choice. And make sure to chat with us on Twitter and LinkedIn. We would love to hear your feedback and learn who else you'd like to hear from. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next week.